It's the same old tune, fiddle and guitar. Where do we take it from here? Rhinestone suits and new shiny cars. It's been the same way for years. We need to change. Somebody Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 84 and 85. And the reason for that is I had Jared McDaniel on. Uh, you might know him from Twitter at, at Jared McDaniel. And he also has a uh, podcast called Ag Uncensored. And Jared and I um, scheduled some time to talk and it was one of those times where we just had plenty to talk about and it kind of went for a while. So we had about a two-hour podcast and and uh, it was a great conversation, super enjoyed it. So um, number 84 is going to be Jared and I talking about his background, uh, the future of farm equipment, um, you know, adjusting to buying equipment during a downturn. And then we just kind of jump into a little bit about who, which which one deserves the credit for yield. Is it planter technology or is it is it the uh, advent of auto steer and planter technology mixed together? So. Um, number 85 will be out later this week so till next time this is Casey Seymour out on this episode I am honored to have Mr. Jared McDaniel from uh, uh, Texoma down that way right that's where you're at yep Texoma Oklahoma or Texas depending on which which person you're talking to and who you want to impress (laughs) right on there you go well you might you might know uh, Jared he's uh, on Twitter at, at Jared McDaniel and he also has a podcast of his own called um, ag uncensored and uh one of the podcasts i listen to pretty regular so jared it's an honor to have you on the show well thanks for having me man i i, I like you guys show i like the flow of it i mean it's and uh i think it's really cool to to get to go on someone else's podcast because i don't you know that's only happened a couple of times i don't right. i don't think many people want me back <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's uh that's why i don't think anyone's I haven't been on anybody else's yet because it's uh, this kid kind of stumbles around when he talks and he knows what he's going to end up saying. And <laughs> foot in the mouth and, that's the way it should be. That's right, though. That's right. Well, Jared, let's talk about you a little bit. So give me a little background on yourself. Um, I follow you on Twitter. Um, you got quite the following on Twitter there. So um, tell me a little bit about yourself and, and kind of how you got to this point in your life. All right. <clears throat> well, I am a father of six kids and my wife and I, we farm and ranch out northwest of Texoma. Uh, I kind of took the shortcut to get here. I started when I was 18. My grandfather had a stroke and my dad, he was never around to farm. He was a veterinarian out in Oregon, but I was raised here and came back and and so I took over the farm. I grew up working on it. So I, you know, grew up working and doing summers, weekends, the whole, you know, farm kid growing up, driving tractors, the whole thing. But then after I was in graduate high school and the plan was to come back and start farming after college, but I got a kind of a crash course start early. So I've been doing it for about 22 years now, I guess, going on that. But uh, just started out not knowing anything about, you know, farming or ranching other than how to do the work and have learned over the years how to do the management side of it. And, and we, we run cow-calf operation and we also raise primarily corn and some wheat and hay you know that's pretty pretty archetypical western southern high plains operation you know we just are cattle corn right now that's that's the big things you know and of course like what you guys talk about the equipment i mean that's always uh, i started off with 
basically junk, anything that I could get my hands on that I could make run. And right I on. most, you know, I had some decent equipment that was left over from like my granddad's operation. It was in good shape. But as I went forward, you know, I learned, I learned that when you actually have to start buying equipment <laughs> and taking care of, you know, I got a, a hard lesson in, in purchasing equipment, you know, how to, how to figure out how to buy it, how to keep it, when to trade it, you know, all of that I learned throughout the years as far as, you know, yep. farm equipment, machinery, <clears throat> any of that kind of stuff. But that's, that's the one, the one thing about buying and selling equipment. I mean, even on my side of the business is that about the time you have it figured out, something changes. And this is this last, you know, five years has been no example, you know, no, no bad example of that. Where you started out in 2013, that's kind of when I would say the marker of when the economy started to slide. And some people want to argue that either way, but you know, you start looking at 2013 through today, all the way through that correction, you know, it went from holy crap, man, this is, I don't know when this is going to stop. And every day is worse than the day it was before. And we're trying to figure out how we're going to mitigate this risk for the dealership as well as for the producer so it every you know works for everybody but you know like you said trying to figure out how to buy equipment when to trade it and all these different things how have you adjusted to that through this down cycle well i think yeah that, that's a huge uh like just ball of wax when you look at most people going in you know this is my opinion is i think a lot of people when they went into you know the good times of 10, 11, 12, you know, when the prices got really good, most of us had pretty wore out equipment. Yep. And that was a good opportunity to upgrade or just, if not even upgrade, just get something that is, you know, times are good. You can buy, afford to buy something. And my mentality going into that was I'm going to buy something I could afford, not junk, but not super brand new, nice, buy some good things that are, have good value and, essentially to survive the downturn because I knew that it probably was going to be a few years before I could buy anything, you know, nice again when the cash flow started drying up. And it, you know, the good years lasted a couple, a few years longer than I think guys expected. Then you got into the whole section 178, everybody's going to, you know, not pay taxes, which that's a whole ball of wax too. You know, whether or not you should be buying equipment on tax, you know, pre-tax after tax money, you know, that, that's open for debate and everybody's got a different opinion on it. But I think now that we're at the point, I, in my opinion, or what I see in the country is everybody's pretty strapped for cash. You know, there's just not a lot of, you, you can make a payment or you can even bite the bullet and maybe buy, you know, one better piece of equipment. But if you have multiple units on your farm that are needy replaced, you're just going to keep, you know, patching them and going because you can't, you know, the finances aren't there to, to roll that. I just don't see where guys, you know, the the cash flow just doesn't support that, that payment structure right now. Yep. I've said it a I'm, couple of times. Go, go ahead. I'm, I'm curious as like you guys as dealers, I mean, because it's not like a flat line. Like you said, you sell a bunch and then you don't have a lot, you know, just the sales will be up and down, but you guys still have to keep inventory. You have to roll it. And I'm always curious, like, are these machines stacking up on lots all over the country or has that already happened? Well, I think we went through that and, you know, you, you look at 14 and 15, those were the years I always called that the purge, you know, and we planners, for example, right now, there aren't enough good used planners on the marketplace right now that on dealers lots. And you can, some guys will argue with, oh man, I just drove by my dealer's lot and he had X number of planners sitting out there. Yeah. 
in 14 and 15, you'd go to any auction, I don't care where it was in the country, there'd be five or six tractors, two or three combines, um, you know, some tillage pieces, that kind of stuff. And then there'd be an entire row, like uh, everyone in the county traded their planter in and they put every one of them on the, on the back line of the auction row. And there might be 10 or 15 planters all in one auction. And that, and the reason for that was in the down cycle, when it happened, guys went from trading, you know, whatever it was, some guys traded for five to seven bucks an acre to where guys were, were triply, you know, had to be triple that because of the, the, just the oversupply out there in the marketplace. And that caught a lot of guys off, off guard so much that they weren't going to buy a planter. Well, dealers, we're stuck with them trying to figure out what we're going to do with them. We had to go out and sell everything that we had on the lot via auction. So now, fast forward two or three years into the future, we don't have any to speak of really good planters out in the marketplace right now that we can bring in. Um, you know, with the, like the, being a deer dealer, you know, having the exact emerge technology and and the Max and the ME5 stuff and all that out there. That first generation in 2015, that there weren't that many that got sold just because you couldn't make the numbers work. Yeah. So that well, that downturn, then that trickled into where we're sitting at now, that people want those planters, and there's just not enough of them to go around. So that supply is way high. So is demand. So is the price. So then you get into the night, like you brought up planters, and you there's kind of been a revolution of everybody's went to like there's a you know stock planters and then they go hot rod them out with mm-hmm. whatever be it precision be a you know an aftermarket bolt-on stuff and i've done it too i've also found that some of that stuff you put on there three or four years down the road you know whether it be electronics wires I, you know i'm kind of getting annoyed with some of that stuff because it's like the good old you know chain and sprocket days i wasn't out in the middle of the field trying to rewire something right <laughs> so yeah so i've seen it come full circle i was pretty an early a pretty early adopter of adding a lot of stuff on planners but the further i go down that rabbit hole the more i can appreciate just a straight stock planner so i think maybe you'll see a little resurgence in some of the you know keep it simple technology you know we can we can make things very very complex that don't need to be right. i think planners are planners are getting to that point like if you need to plan at 9 miles an hour you probably need another guy on a tractor yeah. i mean i don't <laughs> Right. I don't know. I don't get it. I don't get why you need to be a race car to try to plant the crop. But that's that, that's the funny thing about that planter, though. I will say this is that that was the original selling point of that planter was was whether it be precision or whether it be the exact emerge deer stuff or or the other, you know, case or agco, which now are using precision parts out of the factory. Yeah, to make that stuff work. But that that selling point has actually changed now to where it's not the nine mile an hour factor that that's the, Oh, this is so great and awesome. It's the simulation. It's the spacing. It's, it's the, all the parts that make the plant come up that everybody was so jacked up about is so much better. You know, we have plenty yeah. of test plots out there where they've used less, you know, took less seed to plant the same number of acres and got more bushels out of it. You know what I mean? So, oh, yeah. and it's all because of the way the planter works. Oh, and by the way, it still goes, you know, Mach one across the field. So, <laughs> you know, everyone's happy. <laughs> yeah, and I, I I can attest, you know, the planters themselves have gotten better, but w- I think people don't give near enough credit to auto steer. Oh, you know, yeah. I was I was strip tilling before we had auto steer, and you know, the key was if you drove right on top of that strip and you found that sweet spot, yeah. your planter could be not that great, and you still had a better yield than if you wavered off of that. Mm-hmm. So you know, between 
who do we credit the the yield increase to? Is it to to, to auto steer? Is it to the planner? I mean, there's so many things coming together at one time. You know, as a producer, I try to try to dissect that. Okay, where am I getting the most bang from a buck? Is it buying precision parts for the planer? Is it buying auto steer to the RTK? Is it buying, you know, what things am I purchasing, spending money on to try to, you know, get the most return out of that? And I also, you know, I think this is a problem is you want to buy something and not have to go out every year and like, you know, the subscription model. I'm not a big fan of that. I'd rather buy it and be able to use it. And, and hopefully not get kicked into the, the obsolete curve because, you know, you've seen that where it's like, oh, we've got this great tech, but in four years, we're going to basically, you know, force you to upgrade, you know, and I, I don't know where, I don't know where we're going with that as an industry. That's, that's definitely a, a rabbit hole right there. Well, I think my opinion, when you start looking at, and you've probably heard when, when Fennel and I are going back and forth about it, but Aaron Fennel is a 39 year old guy. I think he's 39. And if if you actually actually had a physical conversation with him about equipment, you would still think that they quit making tractors after the forty four forty. I mean, you, you mean <laughs> he's he's that guy. You know what I mean? I, I'm <laughs> and, a little bit that way, but but I understand. Yeah. You know? And my my thing is I'm I'm a I'm a big technology kind of geek when it comes to that kind of stuff. You know, I'm I'm I love technology. I love the fact that there's different things out there in the world that can kind of sort of you know. I hate to use the word "makes your life easier" because it really doesn't make your life easier, but it helps you automate one part of your life, right? Yeah, and there's something you know. Whether it is like uh, ten years ago, I still used a uh, one of those desktop planner things, you know, with the big deal you put on your desk and got the big squares and you write. Yeah, for every day, right? And one guy showed me how to do it on Outlook, and he says, "You know what? This will give you an alert, let you know when the stuff comes up, so you don't have to remember all your stuff." And now I plan my entire day that way, you know, just alert after alert after alert keeps popping up in front of me. I think the technology curve you're talking about is all leading to the to the end game of the automated tractor, you know, the fully autonomous vehicle out there that's that's running around. And you, you speak to this real quick. So when I look at the autonomy of vehicles and start looking at automation and all that kind of stuff, I really think the the labor issue that's out in, in the in the ag world right now is what's driving that more than anything else is. Oh yeah. What do you no, think I, about I, that? I mean, give me your two cents on that. I think I think that definitely the idea of you could you know essentially program it and be at home and and you know. I, I think to the labor point, that's probably where we got away from everybody having eight, twelve row planters to twenty four, thirty six. It's because you know if I can do twice as much and not have another guy and another you know, tractor and, you know, we had to conquer that curve by just doing things, doing bigger things. Now, maybe the op with automated equipment, maybe it's, you'll have three, eight row planters instead of, you know, one twenty four row. Yep. And I mean, I definitely think the technology will get there to work the kinks out. I mean, there's always going to be that thing of, you know, when a row cleaner hangs up that there's not a sensor for it. And, you know, that may go, if you plant it half a field, I mean, those things will happen with automation and then they'll develop a, a fix for it. You know, it's, yeah. it's think of like a coffee maker. It used to be, you plugged it in and a light came on and it made coffee. Then they figured out how to make it to where it shut itself off. Then they figured out how to make it to come on at a certain time and go off. And now it's, you know, it, that technology evolved from it just out of necessity. 
well, the automated stuff is going to go very much the same way. You know, I think, I think even my generation will probably hold on to the steering wheel a lot longer than people expect them to, because we, you know, I, I'm still of prior to auto steer generation, prior to iPads, prior to personal computers. Now my kids, they've all, some of them were born. They've always known a tablet, an iPad. Right. So to them, the, the nature of it, it would be secondhand to be like, nah, we're going to, you mean I can just run this like a farm simulation from my iPad? Well, that's silly that I'm going to go sit on a tractor. Yep. So, you know, they don't have that cultural attachment to the, the seat or the cab of a tractor, maybe that I even I do. So, you know, I'm 41. So really, until you get the, the reins away from those guys who have the money, the older generation are even starting to be mine. I think you're going to have a hard time getting the autonomous stuff moved here. I think a friend of mine, Steve Nels, pointed out, and he, I think he's right. You go to Brazil, you go to these big, giant other countries where the fields are massive, you'll see the automation introduced there. And you'll probably see all of the kinks being worked out and then brought back to America. And, you know, I think it's inevitable. You know, what will that, what will that do to the small towns? I mean, <laughs> you've already decimated most of the economy with, with you know, a size and, and, and scale with what we can, we can do things now. You know, what used to be, uh, I had six employees, I've got myself and two others now because I'm that much more efficient. And that ball just keeps going and going to where there's fewer and fewer people necessary to do the jobs in small towns on farms and ranches. So, you know, that, that's kind of where you eventually end up and there'll be some consequences, you know, take, taking someone out and not being able to drive a tractor, you know, that person doesn't cease to exist. Are you just going to find another job for them? You know, there's so many little leads that you can go off once you, once you start to automate, you know, the, the final thing, that tractor driver. Yeah. Yeah. The automation, I think the automation end of it, <clears throat> me and Aaron have a bet that, that one of the buy lunch we ever, ever loses, but in five years that we'll have a used autonomous vehicle on the lot that we're trying to sell. And um, I think I'm going to win just because I'm, I'm <laughs> you, you, you think there'll be one there. I think there'll be one used one on the lot that we'll have to take care of. And I don't know if it's, you know, like for example, like there's a company I've, I've advertised to or advertised. I've interviewed two different companies. One was called uh, dot technologies and they actually have a, <clears throat> a machine that they're taking orders for now. And if you ever get a chance, go on their website and check it out. But it's all it really is. Yeah, it's a, it's a bar. C dot run deal. Yeah. Where it's like a module that yep. connects to there. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's yep. probably a realistic approach. You know, it does, it doesn't have like, why would you design something to look like a tractor when you don't have to fall, you no longer need a seat, you know? Yeah. You just jump in, it's just a bar that slides into whatever implement and it takes off and goes. Yeah. Does its thing. There's another one I've done called a company called smart ag. And what they have done is they have like a, any machine that is, I'm just kind of a butcher this, I promise. But any machine that's got a uh, a canvas system on it, they can hook this system into it, and it has to have some level of auto track on it. And they made it to where it can be a grain car tractor, so you can be out cutting, and it's got artificial or artificial intelligence in it, the whole nine yards, and it knows the difference between, you know, a person and standing corn and this, that, and the other thing. But it can go between your combine and your grain trailer all day long. So if you're a one man army out there where they used to have a, you know, gotten cut and then you, your bin's full and you drive the combine over to the truck and dump it in there or mm-hmm. jump in your green car tractor or whatever, it, that'll do it all for you. And you can just stay out in the field and cut. And 
that's they can actually bolt that onto an existing tractor now. So, I mean, the systems are there. The uh, C dot run they're taking orders now, and I think for the nineteen season. But the uh, Smart Ag, I mean, it's available to purchase now. There's a few. You can they'll have uh, field days and stuff like that all over the place. So, yeah. I wonder how much you know the just like Tesla and their self driving cars. Yeah. You don't you, you don't hear about however many thousands of them are working perfectly. Right. You know the thing that makes the headlines is is the one that that hits a, a human or has a wreck. In very much the same way, I mean, it, and it'll happen. Somebody oh, yeah. somebody or something will get ran over by a, an autonomous tractor. Yep. And and it won't be everything that's working. It'll be the one or two that don't. Yep. And I guess it's probably a question of just how bad it gets for that one accident. Yeah. That, that one accident's going to be the one, you know, <clears throat> just like we see now, I mean, Tesla's kind of, I mean, they laid off 3,000 people the other day, and they were doing really good up until, um, you know, they were shooting rockets into space. That could, you know, that's all part of their deal. SpaceX is yeah. part of Well, the I have deal. a question on, on your side mm-hmm. for the autonomous tractor, mm-hmm. because part of, and in my opinion, part of, you know, what, when you guys are selling equipment, you know, you're selling just like what I view as like the culture of the cab you know you're in it you're going to spend a lot of time there so you you care about the machine if you are no longer you know you're not selling an office space you're selling just a a piece of equipment what does that do to dealerships what does that do to to you know all the things that go along with keeping an operator station and you know you just have just a straight up piece of equipment like what does that do to equipment dealers i think on our stand from my standpoint i look at that i mean I mean, right now we're doing a lot of diagnosing of equipment with, before we even go in the field. You know, we're looking at codes that get sent back into the dealership. We're looking at all this different stuff. You know, we have a we have a whole group called our called SeaTac, and I mean they they do a lot of uh, you know they catch all the codes when they come in from the tractor. They have some that are um, like you know this code sent in because it's gonna there's a significant issue that if you don't shut down, it's gonna cause a major failure some predictive stuff that they see kind of happening um, in, in the vehicle. So I think from the dealership's part, you're still going to have, you know, engines and transmissions and, and hydrostats and, and all those kind of things you're still going to have to work on. Um, we're just not going to have a steering wheel in the seat. You know, it won't, I, when I do my reconditioning, I won't have to worry about if the seat, you know, airs up or doesn't anymore. You know, it's just going to be, I don't think we're going to have, um, or I, I don't think we're going to miss anything from the dealership yeah. side when I think about that. Do you, do you think we're essentially having the same conversation that a couple of horse traders had as they were, you know, they had heard or seen a movie article about this fancy steam engine that was rolling around yep. being demoed at places. You know, some some guy used to build plows for horses and he was, he was like, oh, hell, there's not enough wood to keep those things running. <laughs> like this right. change has happened before. Oh yeah. It's just, it hasn't happened in our lifetime, but the, you know, yep. I guess the closest thing to it would be auto steer in yeah. my view. You know, that, yeah. that was a game changer in, you know, it, 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 it allowed me whenever social media came along to, to just, you know, get on there and for hours a day, talk to people and, you know, it, when you're stuck in a cab for that many de- hours a day for so many days out of the year, you do something with that time. You trade yep. commodities. You look on the Internet. You know, there's so many levels of technology between cell phones and auto steer that have completely changed the landscape of what, as a farmer, we do. 
So even if I'm not, if I'm not in the cab and I'm sitting at home in an office or I dedicate that time to something else, I mean, there may not be much of a transition away from like the culture of what farmers are doing now. Cause you're essentially, it is driving itself. Right. You, you just happen to be watching the monitors from the cab instead of watching them from your house. Right. Really. Well, you're still going to be uploading your prescriptions into your monitors. So you can still, you know, monitoring what your pivots are doing. I mean, you're still doing that now on your cell phones and everything else. Yeah. Some of that technology that you can start and stop or speed up and slow down and whatever you need to do for pivot irrigation. I mean, you don't have to be there to make that stuff work. You get an alert that, oh, look, a pivot number, whatever's down. You don't need to go check it out. It's just going to be a different, you're going to be in a different spot instead of in the field. And that's going to drive some guys nuts, and that's going to drive other guys to do I mean, <clears throat> hiring some kid to sit by a screen and watch and monitor everything that happens while they're overrunning the business into the business, you know? Yeah. And I think that's yep. going to be the biggest transition for a lot of folks. Yeah, yeah, and that's where I was getting to with, uh, you know, I don't know which, which generation will do it. One generation will seamlessly go to that point. Yeah. But I don't know. It's It's definitely – it's something I look for, but I, I think it's going to be further in five years. I think it's, I think you're just too many diehards are going to hold on to, to the steering wheel for too long. But I don't know. What, what do you, what do you guys see? I mean, back to what's your original question of the downturn, do you think we're out of it? I mean, $4 corn is kind of floating back in, you know, minus the disaster last week. You know, there's, <laughs> there's, right. There, I mean, we're at the point where we're, we're going to start reducing over, you know, carry over and we're going to start seeing some prices stabilize and hopefully, you know, get into a little better marketing and margins should steady or at least improve. Do you guys feel like you're kind of coming out of this thing ready to go or what, what, what do you, what's your sense from the dealers? Well, I, I've used the term soft bottom a lot of times on my podcast and, and, and I've said that pretty much all of 18 that we're kind of hit that yeah. soft bottom spot. We're not going down anymore, but we're not going up either, right? <clears throat> as far as overall values go, um, I think the supply and the demand about middle of 2018, kind of, well, we're kind of right there now, but I mean, has kind of hit that point where the supply and the demand curve have kind of come together. Um, I think a lot of guys are, everybody, you know, one thing about farm guys, if they got a chance to upgrade some equipment, they want to upgrade their equipment, <clears throat> especially key pieces on the farm, whether it be their combine or their planter or, you know, their, their, you know, their row crop tractor or something like that. I and mean, they, they've always, they want to mitigate risk and they want to increase their efficiencies and they want to, you know, make sure that when they go out in the field, they've got the best opportunity to, to be as efficient as they possibly can and, and plant the best possible crop or harvest the best possible crop they can with the means that they have. Fair statement? No, oh, yeah. Okay. No, I think that's a – I think we've reached a plateau on that a little bit. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've got a 9760 combine. It's really essentially – I mean, I know I know there's different things between the 70s and the S-series, and mm-hmm. you know, they're kind of still the same machine, you know, with, other than, you know, there's other – the newer ones are nicer. I'll give them that. But, you know, where I'm at and the size of my operation, like getting a bigger combine's not, it might shave a little bit of time off, but it's, I'm not to the point that I can see the value in the upgrade. Yeah. Maybe other than just whenever I get where it's, the downtime is too much. Right. You know, and, and, and I think, a, and as, 
like you said, kind of the soft bottom, or I think this is where guys are going to hold off of purchases until they get a little capital. Yeah. You know, that's what, that's my game plan. I mean, I looked at leasing. I actually leased a tractor this year for the first time. I've never been a big fan of the whole leasing program, but it was sure nice to have, you know, I had a four wheel drive tractor go down. Mm -hmm. So I leased one for, you know, I think I used it 150 or 160 hours. And that was nice. It was nice to have a bigger machine that worked and I could just take it out and use it, you know, use it for that window that I really needed it. And, and I've, it got me to look in it, you know, lease values aren't bad right now. You know, when you cash flow it, I'm almost better off parking my older stuff while the lease values are fairly reasonable going and using a tractor for the next two or three years. And then if I need to, when buy, you know, when leases get more expensive, turn that back and go back to using my old stuff. I, mean, I know that sounds crazy, but when you look at the, from a cash flow standpoint, you may be better off at that, yeah. you know, cause I, just, I can't, I, I'm, I'm probably not the norm, but I can't bring myself to buy a $300,000 tractor. You know, when I look at tractors, I'm looking at used two, three, 4,000 hour tractor that's been taken care of and, you know, possibly buying that and paying it off and, I look at salvage value as almost a zero. Like when it leaves, when it leaves my place, it goes south to Mexico. Right, <laughs> right on, yeah. <laughs> and 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 I I'm, I know I'm a second tier equipment owner. I'm not I'm not going to be the guy that buys the new stuff. And partly because I just don't I'm not don't have the size. I mean, if I was big enough, yeah, I could see where you would buy that efficiency and scale. But you know, I, where I sit in my operation, I'm one of those guys that's like, man, I don't know how they buy a new one. And I, I don't. I mean, I I know that people do. That's why they keep selling them. But you know, I'm. It's kind of a quasi weird situation. Like you see this. I look at new stuff and say well, that's going to be cool to drive in 15 years because that's usually where I'm sitting. Right. Is you know, 10 to 12 years down the road is when I'll get when I'll get into that model of equipment. Well, I mean, I think to that point, like what you're talking about with the lease stuff, I've had that same conversation with guys over the past two or three years of. I can physically show you how taking this equipment that you have right here, parking it and leasing equipment is going to actually pay off for you. I know. I, I, that's, that's, I came to the exact same conclusion that I'm better off keeping my paid for equipment, parking it, using it when we need to, but really utilizing the new stuff and, you know, rather than making a payment on a new one, keep the old one, make less of a payment on a lease until lease leases get too expensive. And then you, you move out of that market. Yeah. But, I don't know. Is that because lease market's flooded? Well, no. I mean, it's just, I think it's the easiest way right now for guys to go buy equipment. I mean, like you said, a $300,000, well, let's take a brand new combine, right? I don't care if it's a case of New Holland, you know, yeah, cleaner, what, what's, whomever, what's it doesn't matter. Now? I don't I mean, even know. If you buy a brand new Class A combine, you're going to spend, depending on how you have it spec'd out, anywhere from high 300,000s to mid 400s. And that's just, wow. that's just the box. You're not, you know, you got to put, hundred thousand dollar corn head and and uh you know almost a hundred thousand dollar draper head depending on what you decide to do there yeah but you got almost 700 grand and just you know one one machine and, and two heads to make it work you know yeah. and, and i had this conversation with a couple of guys not too long guys like you know we're talking about the differences in the you know this downturn we're in now compared to the 80s right which the eighties was like the ultimate of ultimates, right? <clears throat> you know, like, Everybody has their like moment that they can reflect and be like, hey, it's, it's not as bad as this, you know, <laughs> right. those guys, yeah. for us, it was the 12 drought. But yeah, I know what you're saying. The, the, their benchmark. Yeah. The point I made to guy one time, I was like, no, think about it here, sir. You've got yourself 
if you look back in 1983 and you start running the numbers and everything and you got you got your combines and you got your all your support equipment to go with it and your planing equipment and your tillage equipment and this, that, and the other stuff. If you're a large operator, you had a million dollars worth of equipment, right? And that was, you know, the end-all, be-all. Like, you were a big guy, right? Today's marketplace, if I just get a combine, two heads, and a planter, I'm at a million bucks. Yeah. So this shows you how much things have changed. They had 18% interest on a million dollars back in 1983 or four or five. Today you've got, I think right now you're probably almost four and a half percent interest on, and if you're still doing the same number of acres you were doing then and you were the million dollar guy, you probably got six or seven million dollars equipment at four percent. So you do the math and tell me how much interest is getting paid. Right? No. It's about the same. Right? No. Now, completely different, you know, completely different area. And even though you start looking at some commodity prices now versus then. Not, I mean, they're, they're some pretty close, you know what I mean? So how do you make all that work? Well, it's scale, you know? No, no, you're scale. right. That's, that's, I'm, I'm farming. I want to say what used to be, would be the equivalent of like five family farms. Yeah. And it's not because, it's because, you know, certain small families sold out to another one. Then that one sold out to, you know, and I didn't buy them. I just, a lot of that ground is leased. You know, I, I picked up some lease ground, but I, I, my operation is, is effectively where five families used to be. Right. And, 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 and I have to cover that many acres. So yeah, I buy bigger equipment and, you know, your point to the combine, I ran into this, I had a 9610. That was my, you know, I bought a cheap 9610 that smelled like mice in the cab because it was what I could afford. You know, and I, I cleaned and I, I did without, you know, did whatever I had to, to make it work. And I had an eight-row hitter. Well, you upgrade combines to a better one. Well, then you need a bigger, you, you need a 12-row head to make it work, yep. to make it efficient. Then you need another grain cart. Then you need, you know, you get into that cycle of every time you scale up, it's like a video game. You mm-hmm. level up, you can get better armor, but then you need a better gun. Then you need. <laughs> right. <clears throat> There's always so, something better that you need. And, yep. and those people that make that commitment, and I'm one of them. You buy that bigger, you know, bigger sprayer, a bigger tractor. You know, once you get to that next level, then you kind of accumulate out everything at that level. And then, you know, if you make the jump, you're going to have to take on more land. You're going to have to do something. You're going to have to increase your scale of efficiency in order to cover that, you know, the outlay capital for the, for the equipment. And, you know, I don't, at least where I'm at, I'm comfortable the size I am. I'm not saying I won't ever expand, but, you know, there reaches a point that the risk of taking on all the, the new equipment, the new land, you know, to do, I, I would much rather have higher commodity prices than just make more with what I've got. You know, I think that's everybody's pipe dream is just, just be happy with where they're at and not have to keep jumping through so many hoops in order to be able to maintain an operation, you know, cause I went from, you know, eight road to 12 road. To, I could really use a 24 row planner. But I just make it work with a 12-row because that's what I've got right now. Right. You know, there's – where where's the end of that line, you know? Because yeah. we've – and I've had this conversation with other people, you know. We're, I'm 41. You're – how old are you? You're about that age, right? I'm 40. Yeah, I'll be 41. 40, yeah, we're right yep. there. We're, and we're getting to be the adults, you know, we're, we're, we're the – we're coming into the time when we're fixing to have to start making these decisions – you know, for the next 20 years. 
And for, you know, for effectively the last two to three generations have just went uphill with this. They just right. kept pushing that deal, getting bigger, getting bigger. You know, there's a third world country that can get bigger a lot faster than we can. You know, once, once other countries pick up the technology and the equipment, you know, will our food production be outsourced to the point that we can't scale up enough to, to overcome that? That's kind of what worries me. Yeah. Is, is when they start outsourcing food, you know, when you can get corn from other countries for less than what we can do it and we can't scale that, we can't scale up enough to do that. Yeah. That's when stuff gets pretty ugly. I mean, you see it in the wheat market. Yep. The, you know, every year there's less and less weed out here. And you've seen it all, you know, and, and it's like people keep planting it, but then they ask, why am I even growing this? Right. Because you know, Russia is picking up the slag. Everywhere else in the country that can grow wheat does. And, you know, that's one thing that's went away. Now, if you extrapolate that out and it somehow gets into corn and beans, holy hell, you know, the, the, the dam, the dam will open. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. You know, because then, then we'll be the place that only grows specialty, you know, right. like niche food crops or something. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so last two weeks I've been in the Ukraine, right? Okay, and, yeah, I want to hear about this. Okay, so last two weeks I've been in the Ukraine. First time I've been there, I've been dabbling in the Ukraine for the last, you know, how long have I been in this business? So 2006, 12 years, you know, I've been I've been doing this. And <clears throat> so I go over there and it's like Ukraine is like Iowa, Illinois, and Indiana all had a kid. Right. Okay. So it's great. It's, it's like amazing. Perfect. But take out all the all the weather extremes, right? Now they have it. They're going through a drought right now, but they don't get the mid July. Look how look how beautiful my corn is. Tennis ball size hell and hundred mile an hour wind weather effects. They don't get that. They yeah. get the oh look, it's a it's going to rain two inches today, and it's just going to be that straight, you know, nice soaking rain, perfect into three and a half feet of potting soil, you know, from that's the Scots guy drove by and dropped off in their porch. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yes. it's like the perfect, the perfect growing conditions, right? Now, like I said, they are going through a drought now, but that's way out of the norm. And what do they grow on that ground? Wheat. They grow wheat and sunflowers and a little bit of corn. You know, a lot of, you know, some soybeans and stuff like that, but they primarily grow wheat on that ground. I'm like... I'm driving down the road going, like, why would you be growing wheat here of all things to grow? I mean, you're going to grow a ton of it, and it's going to be amazing wheat, but of all the, I mean, of all the cash crops that you can grow out here, wheat and sunflowers is gonna, are dominating the, the landscape. Now, I'm not an, ag, you know, agronomics guy. There could be all kinds of reasons why they do what they do there, but <clears throat> if you had good genetics, well, take the genetics we see right now, so... The last couple growing seasons haven't been 100% ideal, you know what I mean? But we still produce two bumper crops in a row, right? Yeah. All back, it all goes back to genetics, and take those same genetics and put them in a in a in a, in a freaking vacuum and and let them go. What what could you do? Then how many bushels per acre could you produce with corn in in, in that environment? You know how much soybeans could you produce in, in that environment? All those things start playing into effect, and it's just like. They don't have the infrastructure that we have in the U.S. They don't have all the things that makes it easy for you to get your crop out of out of Oklahoma or Texas or whatever side of the border you're on at th that particular time to any of the any of the outgoing ports to export it to. It just doesn't exist like it, it does here. So, you know, give give it 20 years and what's it look like? 
Um, oh yeah. You know, and it's well, just, Brazil's the same way. You yeah. know, they start building roads, they start building ports. I mean, yeah. And and as a producer, as a guy, you know, when I'm buying equipment, I've got to think, okay, this not only serves me this year, this is going to serve me for ten years. Mm-hmm. You know, so the ten year cycle, no problem. But ten years after that, you know, there's a point that where where are we going to be run out of business? Right. And I don't I don't think we are. I think we're able to stay far enough ahead of that curve. You know, we always have been, but but that's a that's a definite threat. Is whenever there's a lot of land that hasn't been developed. Well, yeah, I mean, know? but think about the, your level of efficiencies that you start looking at. I mean, the American farmer has been able to produce more and more and more on the same ground, you know, over the past 10 years. You know, this, I mean, and it all goes back to, to genetics, but it also goes back to you can grow all you want to, and it's, that's awesome, but if you can't get it from your farm to the elevator to, you know, the Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico to to China or wherever it's going, it's pointless. It doesn't yeah. really matter. And and that's where our biggest advantage is as the United States goes is that we have this infrastructure that you it doesn't take, you know, you can run a train from L.A. to Vegas or I mean Vegas L.A. to New York, right? And that's going to take that train three or four days to do that trip. Any other country. It might take three or four days to take that same train a hundred miles. Yeah, you know, and then you have to, to worry about the the stuff that's on that train even making it. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just have a fat stack of hundred dollar bills, and it'll make it wherever so, you need it to go. What do you think the the equipment dealers in these other parts of the world? Because if they're developing, that would seem like I mean that would be the wild west of selling equipment. Like if yeah. you're going over there where these guys are buying massive volume of equipment. Like, what's that like on your side of things? Like, do you see that being like the new frontier where all this, I mean, you could sell to guys here, of course, but man, if you've got someone running an old, you know, John Deere 9500 and and they, you could sell them a, you know, a slightly used American 60 or 70 series or, you know, whatever it is, you know, that happens here. A lot of stuff goes to Mexico and what, what's, what I find funny is a lot of the stuff that I'm looking for as a second tier buyer I'm competing with those other people in other countries because yeah. we both want the same thing, like yeah. nice used equipment. So do you, do you think that's something that's going on in other parts of the world where, you know, they want our stuff and before too long, they're going to want our new stuff. Yeah. You know? well, that, well, that's what you see now. I mean, that's what you have in those countries now. Like Ukraine, since I was there, I mean, it's, it's one of those places where companies like RDO and Titan and they have, they have stores over there. They have, full-blown AORs that they cover and it's they just like they would in the U.S. The biggest problem in countries like that is either you have a ton of money or you don't have anything, right? And what what where that growth has come is that the people that don't have anything have taken their... Because basically after the Soviet Union collapsed and they had to collect the farms and stuff like that, and say the collective farm, just for easy math, had a thousand, thousand acres, you know, they used hectares over there, it's a metric system, but a thousand hectares... Yeah. which is about two and a half acres. They had 1,000 acres there, and they had 100 people doing that. That means everybody got 10 acres. Ten, everyone that worked the collective got 10 hectares, right? You grew your yeah. own crops on there, and then you processed that. Well, what you're seeing now is all those little five- and ten-acre guys, you know, take theirs, and they sell it off to this guy over here or lease it to him or whatever, 
or whatever they're whatever they're doing. And you're starting to see the rise of like the what we what we would consider to be a, a mid a mid level or maybe even a smaller mid level farmer that two thousand, twenty five hundred, five thousand acre guy is starting to kind of pop up over there now. What they don't have in those countries, they got all kinds of new equipment over there, but it's the same price as it is here, right? Well, yeah. Depending on what it is, they don't have that thousand hour tractor there. Like someone goes buys a brand new one, and they run it for ten thousand hours, and then they want to go get a new one. That's how it works. And they, when there was the whole Belarusas and everything else that were over there, they would buy three because parts availability was so bad, and those Belarusas are known for their their great working power and that they never break, right? They would buy three tractors, one to use and two for parts. <clears throat> when they ran <laughs> when they ran out of parts on the other two parts tractors, they would scrap them and sell off the good one they have and get another new one. You know, and then that's they would keep doing that cycle. So where as an as an American over there equipment dealer, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take a look at the number of new machines that I'm gonna sell. How many can I digest back into my how many used pieces can i digest back into my marketplace what how many pieces do i need to keep around to maintain a high absorption rate with my parts and service business and then what's left is an arbitrage around our neck that's the stuff that just sits on the lot that nobody has a hard time selling because it's not maybe not the best piece of equipment or it didn't come from a home that, that was the best place in the world. You know, like you guys know, like if you see a yeah. piece of equipment, it comes from Farmer X over here. Well, you know how Farmer X takes care of this stuff. And you may or may not want to buy that piece of equipment, right? But Farmer A over here, you're like, man, that guy's got good stuff. He's the the grease gun, never leaves his hand. And it's, it's the best piece of equipment I can go buy because it's taken care of. That's the piece of equipment that I want to buy. Well, Farmer X's stuff over here just kind of hangs out, right? Yeah. Well, Farmer X's stuff is is grade A quality stuff in Ukraine, right? So I want to take that stuff and I want to move it over there. That's And that's probably, you know, it's not a big amount of my inventory that I want to move over there. It's 5 10% at the most that I want to move over there. I want to keep 90% of it here and keep that in my AOR and, and, and work that as much as I possibly can. But because I want the parts and service business. I got to have that parts and service business to maintain the dealership. So, but oh, that, no. that 10% of the stuff is like, for us, that'd be three to $5 million worth of stuff. And that's three to $5 million of stuff that I'm not going to pay interest on. It's three to $5 million worth of stuff I'm not going to get a trade in on. And so it's a huge opportunity. It's, it's China, it's South America, it's Ukraine, it's Eastern Europe, it's Northern Africa. Um, well, all of Africa for that matter, but it's just, but the problem with that is, it's not the fact that we don't have buyers. It's the fact we don't have buyers with money. That's the hard part. They, oh, yeah. They want to sell you, like, well, I want the combine now so I can go out and cut my crop, and then you can take my crop and pay for the combine. Well, what if you, yeah. What? <laughs> they transferred the risk. Yeah, I, 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 I know what you're talking about. I, I sold a Rogator. My first self-propelled sprayer was a Rogator 854. You know, there's about a, there's 100 million of them scattered across the, the high plains out here. Yep. And finally sold it to, you know, a, a jockey that it was going to Mexico. And they, uh, you know, showed up, picked it up. And I'd done deals with this guy several times before. Liked him, never had a problem. Sprayer leaves, I get a check. And then I go cash the check and it and the check's no good. And I did, everything worked out. You know, I didn't get stiff. There wasn't a problem. 
but and it wasn't that the guy who gave me the check wasn't you know he he got stiffed before it got to him you know yeah. so like their origination point that bought it somewhere in mexico don't know where you know they they stiffed the buyer and then he ended up his check bounced to me you know but that that happens right now you know just going to mexico yeah so you know and and luckily it was a local enough deal that everybody was made right no problem but yeah. if you've got your equipment <laughs> sitting in northern africa ukraine you know halfway around the world you know that might get written off as a bad debt, you know, at some point, if you, if you get, if you venture into what, like what you're saying, the cat, you know, crop in exchange for equipment type setups. Yeah. Like that, you can't take that risk. But. No, and you can't. And it's one of those things like, and it's such a catch 22 because yeah, you know, all right, all right, fine. We'll take it over there. You can go out and harvest your grain with it. One of our representatives will meet you there and we're going to physically watch the grain go from here to there and everywhere else it needs to go. Well, once it's there, I mean, a combine on a roll-off, roll-on scenario on a on a ship, it's it's twenty grand to do that, right? Yeah, that was that was my question: is how much does it cost? To, you know, some of this stuff may be more expensive to get over there than it's worth here. Yeah, unless it's it's a nice piece of equipment. Yeah. So to do that, what I just said that scenario is the same thing. There's a company that 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 we work with. Um, and they containerize stuff, so they can take like your eight fifty four rogator and stick stick it in a fifty three foot container, or a forty foot container, or whatever size you pick, and that's about five grand. About anywhere in the, in the world to get you about five to six thousand bucks, you can get something wherever you're going, right? Yeah, and then just put it put it back together on the back end, and boom, you yeah, got it there. And, and you hope to God that it all goes back like it's supposed to, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but then you got you know like Ukraine. Let's use that one. You know you've got roll on roll off will be 20 grand plus to get it over there plus you have 20 percent vat once you get it there so it's a import tax so if you sell them a hundred thousand dollar combine you have twenty thousand dollars worth of taxes plus your twenty thousand dollars to get it over there so now your hundred thousand dollar combine here is a hundred and forty thousand combine dollar combine and you haven't made any money yet right yeah so, and and you've got currency exchanges oh, yeah. and, and and all that kind of yeah, yeah they so do you think that if the demand's good enough that they'll just start building the stuff over there as opposed to? Well, you already see it now. I mean, with the European marketplace, I mean, all of Eastern Europe, I mean, Germany is, they get all a bunch of, you know, new John Deere equipment out of Germany and they get England and France and everywhere else. John Deere has, has plants all over the place over there to do all that stuff. But <clears throat> all that being said, they still have to get from Des Moines. They still got to get from, um, you know, every, all the John Deere equipment that gets made here gets shipped overseas too. I mean, it, it's just, and, and the biggest problem you see over there is, is until they come up with a way to get good, solid, used equipment, because they get stuff out of out of Europe to take over there, like France and Germany and <clears throat> England and those kind of places to take there. But again, we're talking like somebody's excited to get that ten thousand hour tractor that's never had anything done to the engine or the transmission or the rear end. Yeah. They're, they're jumping up and down. I'm like, God damn, man. That's like, that's a ticking time bomb, bro. Okay. <laughs> You're doing cartwheels for that, you know? And <laughs> Yeah. I, and I ride that edge. I'll get something that, you know, when it's got four or 5,000 hours, I think one of mine's got 7,900 hours. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm kind of looking at that 10,000 as the finish line. And it's, it is, it's rolling the dice. You hope you get, you hope you trade it off. Every, this is everybody's pipe dream. I'm going to buy a good used piece of equipment, run it for 6,000 hours, not spend a dime on anything. 
and then trade it off to some other poor sucker who's going to have to just eat it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> we're, we're, it's hot potato. Oh. I mean, that's essentially, we, we're all playing hot potato. And, you know, I've been stuck with it. Yeah. I've, I've had, you know, I've got that thing that was good. And then halfway down through the race, you know, you bite a big bullet. Yeah. You know? So nobody's immune, but, but you know, it, and I don't know if that's a healthy industry is that we're all kind of jockeying the hot potato around you know yeah because because eventually someone's gonna left holding it you know the the bottom end well that explosion i mean the explosion in crop production around the world is whatever seed company decided to do one day is like all right boys we've kind of matured here in the u.s right yeah can't really gain any market share in u.s or canada right so what are we going to do in order for us to expand and grow and make more money what do we need to do? We need to go teach the rest of the world how to farm, right? Well, in the meanwhile, while they did that, they forgot that they're still farming over there with, in a lot of these countries, they're still farming with a horse and a plow. You yeah. know, they're, they're doing the, the the horses pulling the the combine through the field. I mean, it's not, like, that is not a far-fetched picture, right? There are a lot of stuff's even getting done by hand. I went to South Africa a couple of years ago, and it was, this is how cheap labor is. You go out and cut your soybeans, with a just a rigid head, right? Not a flex head, just a rigid head. Because what you miss, what the combine misses with the head, they'll send out a bunch of people in the field to go just pick them up off the ground or pick them off the stems or whatever else and put them in burlap sacks and walk them back to the end of the field and they'll pick them up that way. That's completely inefficient, right? Like, that's so inefficient. But labor is so cheap that it makes sense. Yeah. Well, and, and that's going to continue. I mean... There's way more people in everywhere else besides the United States. You know, that's the demographic idea. You know, when you look at just the, what, the U.S. has got 330 million. Right. Out of the, what's the number now, 7 billion? 7 billion, yeah. I mean. <laughs> like 1% of the population lives in the U.S. Yeah, we're, 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 we're a drop in the bucket, but we do produce a lot. Or half a percent, you know, in, yeah. in the arable land argument maybe the other thing, but. But yeah, I don't know. It, it's cool to think about that of where where the food is going to go because you're right. The seed companies did they they saturated this market and they saturated it appropriately. I mean, oh, it, yeah. we we as producers and farmers said we want this, we want this, we want you know. Mm-hmm. It's not their fault. We no. were buying the whole time, yep. and uh, you know, who who knows what the future of that is? I know that we have. Uh, you know, I look at it from the from the cattle side of our operation. You know, I can I can see where one day I I curtail some of the farming for like corn and wheat and some of these row crops, and I just I kind of do away with that and go more intensive into livestock because there's probably a brighter future in that arena. But you also have the livestock industry that's been consolidating for God twenty years or better. Yep. You know, I mean, the, you look at the livestock numbers, we've just continued to it's it's a story that's mimicked in grains right now fewer people producing more you know more efficient more efficient better cattle they grade better more choice steaks you know and all the all the while you know less and less people doing more and more and and to the point that you've almost reached and the like the coin you used earlier a soft bottom where there's you know, we're still making money and the people that are there. And if, if appetites come back for beef, like the paleo diets and whatever mm-hmm. fad comes in and everybody wants to eat, you know, meat again, well, there's upswing in that. Yeah. You know? So, you know, we're, 
I don't think farming's quite reached that, you know, because it's still decentralized enough that it seems like we, the 80s would have been a part of it and there still is consolidation, but we haven't had that where really, I, I think I've seen it some out here, but when I look at, talk to people from the Midwest and places that do have the fertile organic soil, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, there's still a lot of people doing it in those parts of the world. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. I'd like to thank Jared for being on this episode. Remember, number 85 will be out on Friday, and that'll be a continue to this conversation. Remember, if you want to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. And you can also send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at movingironpodcast.com. You can also visit the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. Here you can find After the Bell with Chip Nellinger and Tax Moves with Glenn Birnbaum. Moving Iron LLC has a website you can visit, movingironllc.com. Here you can find information for the 2018 Moving Iron Summit in Las Vegas, past and current episodes of Moving Iron Podcast, and articles for Moving Iron Blog. Throughout the year, there'll be guest bloggers writing on various topics from their point of view. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe at your favorite podcasting platform. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour. Out. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. Through the years you'll find a seed.